Welcome back to From the Back Tees Podcast. This is Tucker Booth with my Rappers Don't Golf interview segment. Got another very interesting guest, Golf Channel commentator and on-course correspondent Jerry Foltz joins me today. Jerry was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, played college golf at the University of Arizona, where he was named an All-Pac-10 selection in 1984. He went on to win the Arizona Amateur in 1989. Jerry turned pro in 1990 and then was injured almost immediately after turning pro in a fairly traumatic way. He managed to rehab himself physically and catch two wins on the tour before he pivoted in 1999 to become an on-course analyst, play-by-play commentator, and regular guest on such shows as Golf Central, Academy Live, Morning Drive, and many others on the Golf Channel. Very pleased to have Jerry Foltz with me today. Jerry, how you doing? I'm doing great, Tucker. That little intro you gave sounded really cool. That's uh, way better than how I view myself and only shows you that I'm old. <laughs> well, okay, old man. Let's get in the time machine and we'll go back and let's let's kind of do it from when you were a kid. Now, you grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, which nowadays is kind of a hotbed for golf, but I imagine back in the 80s reading some of these interviews I've read with you that that was a different story. So tell me a little bit about how you got into the game of golf and how you kind of decided that that was something you wanted to pursue on a more professional level. You called me old man, and you said back in the 80s. I was gone by 1980 when I graduated high school. But uh, I, um, my dad loved golf. He was he, uh, lifetime, worked in the casino industry. And uh, it, well, there was a time in his life, in the early life, where he actually used to shag balls for uh, Tommy Armour, the first. Um, so he was he was a lover of the game, a lover of the history of the game. And every once in a while, he'd take me out with his friends on a Saturday morning when they played the Las Vegas Muni, which was the, our club, if you, if you if you will. And uh, and I just fell in love with it. I was youngest of four kids. I couldn't wait to get out of the house. I had twin sisters who were seven years older who just beat me repeatedly and were absolutely evil. I'm kidding, of course. But uh, it was uh, I, I played team sports growing up, but I, I, there was something about the solid of the golf course that, that, that hooked me. And I started playing golf a lot at about age eight. At, at age 11, I got a job at the Las Vegas Muni. An older gentleman named John DeFleur hired me five years before I was legally allowed to be employed to do a lot of work around the golf course from three till close every other day. And that gave me free golf. And that was uh, the greatest blessing of my entire life, um, for the most part, to uh, to be able to cultivate what, what I just absolutely fell in love with. And as you know, anybody who's listening to this knows, once got, once golf grabs you, you are you are hooked for life. And uh, and it led to some pretty cool things. And now the, the most incredible job that anybody could ever imagine um, that I get to do and they pay me well for. And it's, it's not a hard job. And and it's a lot of fun. So uh, golf has been my entire life. And I have a friend I used to play junior golf against who has done very well for himself through golf and, and helped starting a hole-in-one insurance company. But that's another story. Uh, he has a license plate that says, Owe it to golf. And there's so many people who I know and who, who are in my life who basically owe everything that's in their life to the game of golf. Yeah, and you lead me to the question which is, it seems like, especially professionals, but all of us golf nuts out there, there's some kind of hook that golf gets in you mentally and emotionally that's just deeper than just about any other sport I can imagine. I love other sports. I grew up playing basketball. I love basketball. I was passionate about it. But once I finally got a taste for golf, this is a whole other animal 
mentally and emotionally. I guess maybe expound a little bit upon, upon that owe it to golf philosophy and kind of what do you think it is that makes golf so magnetic and mesmeric to people that they become so devout to it for life? You know, I think a lot of people have tried articulating that who are way better with words than I am, and I don't think anybody can actually do it. Um, to me, golf is the most spiritual of the games. And I'm not a, I'm not a religious person, but it's the most spiritual of the games because none of the other games or sports you played growing up are, are, are things you can do as a solo endeavor for the most part. Um, and you, you can spend a few hours on the golf course, or even to this day, I still love playing golf by myself. And... And you still have the dreams of qualifying now at this age for a senior open and winning that and having glory. Whereas when I was eight or nine years old, I was winning the Masters or I was winning the, the PGA Championship or something that I had seen on TV. But uh, it's the most spiritual because it truly is uh, the only game in the world where everything is still except you. Uh, the target's still, the object's still, obviously. Everything in the world is still except you, and, and it's impossible to master. But yet, when it hooks you, you don't know that. You, you, you think you could do it, and you hit those shots. And, and as you practice more and more, and you get hooked, and you hit more and more of them, you think, I, I can do this. I can get to the level where I'm great. And, uh, and very few ever get to that level. And even when they do, uh, Tiger Woods, who's the greatest probably of all time, arguably, but he will tell you every single tournament after 72 holes how many shots could have been better. Every single round could have been better. And uh, it, there's just something spiritual spiritual about being out there in nature in a vast open land um, trying to compete against yourself more than anybody else in the world. And uh, it is completely addicting. And I haven't kicked it yet. I went through a spell when I retired from playing, which uh, my good friend John McGinnis said, with my career, it's just called quitting, retiring. <laughs> but there was a time when I went through, when I, when I just did like play a golf game, and then my friends got me out there. And I absolutely love the game now at 57 years old as much as I did when I was eight. That's that's wonderful. I, I I totally understand that, and you're you're already kind of getting me headed towards some of these other questions about nowadays. But I'll still stick with the past for a little bit longer, Jerry. When did you know that you wanted to turn pro? I mean, beyond it just being a dream that children have about winning the Masters, when did you think this was a legitimate job plan for you? Was it in college, or tell us a little bit about your days at University of Arizona and kind of really carving out a niche? Uh, and becoming a professional? Well, when I, when I started winning stuff as a junior in Las Vegas, and, and back then, if you had a matching set of head covers, you could pretty much win. Um, <laughs> but I started winning some tournaments, and I started winning some state tournaments, and then I started uh, qualifying for national tournaments. And it was long before the Internet and the AJGA and those things. And, uh, and I was the last of four kids, and, and it was my only path to college. We had nothing growing up, no money at all. My mom was a school secretary. My dad was a dealer in a casino. And, um, and it was my only path to go to college, and all that meant to me was it was my path not working. And not like my sisters did as soon as they graduated high school, as did my brother. And so hey, golf, I started, um, I started getting calls from college coaches in my senior year, and I thought, well, it would kind of be cool to go to college, be the first person in my entire extended family to ever even attend college, much less graduate. And then it was during college that, you know, like so many people, I went to college to play golf. I didn't play golf to go to college. 
and uh, and I loved it at U of A. It was it was fantastic. I had so much fun. But, but during that time, I I got to know quite a few people who went on to play the PGA Tour as I progressed through my college career, which took uh, an extended period of time, as you could imagine. And uh, and I and that was the only thing that I thought about was I don't want to go to work. I want to play golf for a living. And uh, and I did everything I possibly could to that end, and um, I, I you know ended up having an okay career, but there was a lot of uh, a lot of things that took away from it. Um, and it, and it, in that little bit of ten years that I played professional golf, uh, led me let me get my foot in the door at the Golf Channel as a commentator, and um, and it's it's turned out pretty good for an old man. Well, let's go to when you first turned pro because I've done some research on you and it says that three days after you turned pro, you were hit by a drunk driver in a car accident that seriously hampered you physically for the majority of your playing career. Obviously, you don't want to rip up old wounds or anything, but what must that feel like or what did that feel like for you to just be turning that corner, just getting in the door and then suddenly realizing that you had a fairly significant injury that very well would probably retire most people right away. And kind of how did you work your way through that and find a way to get to a point where you were able to win tournaments after that? Well, uh, between my fifth and sixth year of college, I did go to a couple other colleges for a year each before U of A. But um, So I, I, I went back for a year to finish college just, just for my parents, for my mom and dad, my late parents. Um, and to let them know that it can be done, that a Fultz can actually go to college and graduate. So I went back for an extra year to finish, and in that time I got a job as an assistant pro in Tucson at Ventana Canyon, and some of the members there decided to sponsor me. So I sold shares of myself at 500 bucks each and uh, signed signed with those guys on July 1st, and then July 4th, at just about sunset, I got plowed by a guy, uh, John Fournier, I'll never forget him, uh, who was going 50 and I was at a stop sign with, at the time, my girlfriend turned out to be my wife for 20-something years. We've, we've since uh, gone our separate ways. But, um, and, and I, yeah, my back was mangled and continued to battle that pretty much my entire career. Um, I didn't think I'd play golf again. I ended up bartending and waiting tables and managing restaurants and getting a real estate license and trying to sell commercial real estate for the better part of about four years before uh, before one gentleman um, who, for whom I worked at a restaurant, a, a guy who had a little bit of money, um, played golf with me one day when I could actually play again. And I, at Ventana Canyon, of all places, where I used to work, and we played nine holes, and I birdied six of them, including the last five in a row. And the next night at work, he fired me. He said, how much will it take? Meet me in my lawyer's office tomorrow. And uh, and I went in, and uh, he sponsored me for the better part of 10 years to, to chase the dream. Wow. I mean, that's so remarkable that someone would have that much belief to invest in you personally like that. So, okay, you're back. You're trying to get back into the tour. You're trying to get back to a place where you feel physically capable of doing this. What was the physical rehab like to even be able to attempt it with a back injury that significant? It never ended. There were, I always had a bad back. I played with a back brace on, uh, actually the one that Payne Stewart has adjusted to me years and years ago in the early 90s. Um, I played with a back brace. I... I uh, I it, it's, it always hurt, still does to this day, but it's much more manageable now um, that I'm not playing every day and I'm not putting my, my spine through that torque. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's just your life. 
you know, Casey Martin, who's who's trying to, is fighting to save his leg right now with the broken femur. Um, when I spoke to him, when I first met him, I was already a commentator by then, and he came out to and made the, you know, got his tour car through the uh, Corn Ferry Tour, what was then the Nationwide Tour, I believe, or even Nike Tour. But um, and then I spoke to him and about living in daily pain and the little bit of back pain I would have occasionally or sporadically, and sometimes it would spasm up and be debilitating, but it's nothing compared to what someone like him, like he goes through on a daily basis. So I actually feel quite fortunate because when a guy's going 50 miles an hour here at a stop sign, I don't know if you're supposed to live. And, um, and I walked away from it, actually chased him away from it. So, uh, it, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like that hindered me in any way. I feel like it helped make me the person I am in, in terms of doing whatever it takes to get where you want to be and to get what you want. And, uh, and whatever physical work you have to put into it, you, you do it. It's just you don't have an option. Um, but I've never really even talked about this publicly before, so thank you for asking. Well, I'm fascinated by it, Jerry. I don't mean to, like I said, I'm not trying to bring up painful memories or anything, but to me... The thing that always jumps out about someone is what their biggest challenge was in life. And usually that's physical. Sometimes it's emotional. Maybe it's both. Maybe they're tied together. But when I read that about you, I went, wow, how many people do I know, including myself, that would have used that as an excuse to just completely wash out of being successful at all or even to have a normal, healthy life physically from there? And here you are not only playing for three more years and winning twice in that span, but then also going on to become an on-the-course commentator who's obviously walking around and being fairly physical every day with your work. I mean, it just it seems very impressive to me. I think the term I used with you was Hogan-esque. You laughed at that. But I'd say, you know, Ben Hogan getting hit by a bus and coming back and playing through pain to win tournaments after that, that does seem similar to me to what you've gone through. Well, there's a huge difference um, in, in one respect, and I appreciate the analogy. I've never heard that before, and I'm not sure I accept it at all. I just <laughs> I did what I had to do to be able to try and, and not have to go to work, quite honestly. Um, but what held me back more than anything was just simply a lack of talent. Well, I didn't have a lot of talent. I, uh, mine was a little more limited, and uh, and I had I didn't have a lot of self-belief. Had, uh, a friend of mine who's competing... Uh, currently on the PGA Tour Champions, Tommy Tolles, uh, we played together in the early days of the Hogan and Nike Tour, and he used to tell me, if you had a head on your shoulders, you'd be a top five player in the world. And I'm like, and I, he goes, you're that good a ball striker. And I thought, who the, who are you kidding? You're just being my friend. Um, but so I, I literally never had a whole lot of self-belief. Greg Norman once told uh, in, a, in a room of people in 1988, I had a, a friend who ran into a little bit of a severance pay package and decided to sponsor a uh, us to go down to the uh, Australia and try and qualify for what was in the Australian tour. And, um, and we went down, I got my card, he didn't, he paid for the whole six and a half months down there. And, and I, and I, I made, I qualified and he didn't. So he ended up caddying for me. And, uh, and I, I just, literally never had the self-belief to do it. And I remember Greg Norman in a player's meeting. Now, this is, he's kind of at the heyday of his career back then. But in a player's meeting where typically when you get a mandatory player's meeting and everybody has to show up, everybody kind of 
brings up issues that'll make their little slice of life a little better. How can I get to the, how do you let this guy get in the tournament, not me? How does this happen? How do you play this course? How do they set those pins, what have you? And Greg Norman had had enough of it. And he didn't even have to be there at that point. He was a star in the, in the international world of golf. And he stood up and everybody, and we were in a tent. There's about, I don't know, 80 to 100 players in there only. And he said, guys, look, the only difference between you and me is I believe, I know I'm going to do it, and you think you can do it. He goes, it's all self-belief, and if you play better, everything will take care of itself. An old Dean Beam in line, of all things. And uh, and I'll never forget that. So I uh, I appreciate the compliment and the analogies, but um, I, I, don't, I don't know if I ever had really what it took uh, to do what the players do, who I get the good fortune of being able to watch week in and week out. Well, you did manage to win twice on tour. It says here that you won the Newport Classic in 94 and the South Carolina Classic in 95 on the Nike Tour. So what did it take for you to get into the winner's circle? What was your winning formula that gave you those brief moments of utmost success? Like so many people who uh, who, who chase the dream and, and have a little bit of success later in life, uh, it takes getting out of your own way. If you have the talent, you can do it. If you believe in yourself, you don't even have to have the talent to do it. The, the, the landscape is full of players, uh, overachievers like that. Um, but you just get out of your own way, to be quite honest. You, you know you can hit the shots. You've practiced them a million times. You uh, you get out there and you just let your let your 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 natural self, your inner self, your authentic self, as one sports psychologist put it, uh, play golf and not get in your own way and not think about it, not think about the outcome, not think about the future, not think about all the things that playing well can mean. And, and the hardest part about that is, is that's all the things you've dreamt about your entire life. And uh, I had an incredible sense of calm about me when I won the biggest event. It was a Nike Tour event. It's not a big event, but a Nike Tour event in South Carolina. I had just come off missing three cuts in a row, and then the fourth week I made a cut barely, but uh, ran out of golf balls in a practice round. I was putting, looking at the hole, and and for some reason on the 10-hour drive from Arab, Alabama to Florence, South Carolina, I had this feeling that, you know what, I am good enough to do this. I am absolutely good enough to do this. And the next week, I did the one thing that I preached to everybody. Kurt Byram, who's a colleague of mine now and had a nice PGA Tour career as well, we uh, we completely agree on this. Guys get out there and they get into the culture of changing your swing, hiring a coach, looking for the next uh, elixir, if you will. And uh, and the, the answer lies inside. It always lies inside. And the next, the very next week, I didn't hit a single golf ball for the entire week, not a single practice ball. And uh, went out the first day and sliced the first tee shot into the woods, somehow made par, sliced the second tee shot into a, into a lateral hazard, uh, somehow made par. And by the third tee, I told my caddy, we're playing a slice today. Next day, I went out and didn't hit a single range ball, and it turned into a fade. The third day, it was going pretty straight. By the fourth day, it was drawing a little, and I had the best ball striking round in my history by far. And and I'd only won by one shot, but it seemed like I won easily that day. So I think just getting out of your own way, not overthinking it, just simply playing golf, Tucker, to be quite honest. It's just go out there and play golf. It's so easy to say, and I say it all the time on air, but it's so hard to do. Well, you're preaching to the choir there, brother. I'd say my biggest problem playing golf is my wacky, squirrely mind and how often it gets in the way of just doing what you say and letting myself be my authentic self with my authentic swing and just play. So I completely can relate to you there. 
Um, never won anything, so I can't relate to that, but I can relate to that. Uh, okay, so you're getting to the point where you know that you're not going to be a pro for that long on the tour. It's three years in. You're starting to see that you need to make a change. Now, from what I read, you were still playing competitively when you were recruited by the Golf Channel to come on board as an analyst and on-course commentator for their different shows on the network. Tell me a little bit about how that came about and tell us a little bit about how you decided to make that huge change, which I think has been incredibly successful for you once you did make the change. Bartending somewhere had uh, had, a, had, a, had it not happened that way. I played when the Golf Channel first came around in 1995. Um, I had heard about it and I thought, well, that, there's no way that ever works. But I was excited about it, and I happened to be in one little enclave in in Phoenix, Arizona, at the time where we lived. That that got the option to add Golf Channel to your cable bill for seven dollars a month. And and I did it. I couldn't afford seven bucks a month, but I did it because I wanted to see what this was and what it was about. And then uh, first tournament they covered on the then Nike tour, um, I went over and I met the producer because I had done, we had two tournaments that were actually televised back in the day, regular tournaments that were actually televised. The tour championship was on ESPN, but there were two tournaments that were televised regionally. One was in Sioux City, South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, same city, and one was in Tri-Cities, Washington. And one day they, the media official had asked me, um, the guy who the guy who was doing the analysts uh, made the cut and you didn't, would you mind doing the weekend TV locally here? And they had one hole, three cameras in Sioux City, South Dakota. And... Uh, and I went up and I, I played the part of analyst. No commercial breaks. I think we were on for six or seven hours as a local CBS or NBC affiliate. And uh, and they liked me. And so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Why, why would they? Uh, the only reason they liked me is because the, the, the sports anchor they had um, had never touched a golf club in his life. So I sounded so knowledgeable. And, of course, I'd been playing out there for a while, so I knew everybody. Um and then when the Golf Channel came around, I went over the very first tournament they covered on our tour, which was the second event they ever broadcast, and I introduced myself to the producer, a guy who you know and, and is still to this day my best friend in life, um, a guy named Keith Hirschland. And, and I just introduced myself and said, hey, I'm Jerry Fultz. I've been out here a little while. If there's anything I can ever do to help, let me know. And in the meantime, the name rung a bell, Hirschland. I said, are you from Reno, Nevada? I grew up in Vegas. He goes, yeah. I go, well, I played junior golf against your brother. Matter of fact, you were my chaperone at a junior team event in Portland, Oregon, and whatever year it was. Uh, he wow. For that, from applesauce. But uh, he said, he said, hey, nice to meet you. Great, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I went, up, went on my way. And then the very next day during the pro-am, he came out and hunted me down. And he said, hey. Uh, you want to work tomorrow? You tee off early, and we're on the air late. And I go, I go, I'll help you out any way I can. And uh, he said, come to the TV compound when you're done, and uh, we're going to put you to work. And I'm like, cool. I had no idea what I was going to what I was going to be doing, carrying a microphone around, whatever. And he sat me in a trailer in front of about 60 TV monitors, and uh, he said, when the guy next to you on this side points to somebody, you tell them who it is. Because they didn't know who they were. And I, I knew who everybody was. And they uh, they had tried a guy the day before. Uh, yeah, so that was the second round. They tried a guy the day before, and, and he couldn't recognize him. He was the equipment repair guy, and he couldn't recognize him the way a golfer can recognize somebody by mannerisms. And that way they could get the graphics right. And they could, you know, tell the audience who was hitting the next shot. 
At the end of that day, he gave me a piece of paper that said, fill this out, give us a social security number, and we'll pay you 50 bucks. And I handed it back. I said, I'll do this every day as long as I can. That was actually a lot of fun. So then uh, the very next week, they put me out with a microphone. I hung out with the crew, made friends, and, and did the, the, the things that were very exciting for me, but that, that they thought were really cool, which was obviously never my intention. And uh, they put me out with one of their on-course commentators as a guest, and he was an English guy named Gary Smith. And I made fun of him. I laughed. I told jokes and, and on the air, and they, they all thought that was really cool. And a couple weeks later, they had an opening in the schedule, and they needed a commentator, so they hired me for a week and gave me my own microphone, and, and that, uh, that led to this. So just for the listeners, in case you don't know all of the things that Jerry does for the Golf Channel, you are a consistent analyst and on-course reporter for the Corn Ferry Tour, formerly the Nationwide, Nike, etc. You do LPGA events, you do PGA events, you've hosted a show called Quest for the Card, which focuses on the Corn Ferry Tour and people trying to get their cards onto the PGA. So you're all over the place with these different shows that you're involved in and with the different tours that you're involved in. I guess give me a little taste of what some of your favorite things are that you get to do or do you just love it all? I mean, kind of where does your passion lie in broadcasting? It seems like you do a lot with the ladies PGA Tour and that you're, you're fairly uh, prominent with the, the Corn Ferry and etc. But I mean, you, you tell me, what, what do you like doing the best as far as your job goes? Telling stories. Anybody who anybody who, anybody who does a job similar to mine who's worked their way uh, in, in gold or assault or anything, uh, their, their passion lies in telling stories and, and relaying to the viewer who is our boss. Uh, and that don't mistake that ever. We have bosses, but the viewer is our absolute boss. Johnny Miller will be the first and last to tell you that because that's the only lesson you need to learn. Um, to be able to tell stories about what these guys are going through, whether it be just over that shot or, or these ladies are going through just over that shot or, or in life to get to where they were and to watch them succeed. And one of the reasons I enjoyed the Corn Ferry Tour, I don't get to do that much anymore, um, but I enjoyed that for years because that's where I cut my teeth. That's where the, the majority of my existence as a professional was. And I know what that tour means because those stories mean so much more than a guy uh, having and you know being able to fuel up his private jet a little more. The, the players on the PGA Tour are obviously the greatest players in the world, um, but the stories are harder to tell because everybody knows them. But when you're on the Corn Ferry Tour, or when you're watching the LPGA Tour, which is to this day still the second highest rated product Golf Channel has, um, you get but not as not as many eyeballs on it as the PGA Tour. You get to tell those stories. You get to tell what they've overcome. You get to tell what they're going through. You get to you get to bring the viewer inside the ropes and 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 feel like they're they're watching the tournament with you. And uh, therein lies the passion. Is, is and I there are still there are so many times stuck to this day where I'm doing a winner's interview and I choke up because I know what they have gone through and what what it means to them. Uh, to their career, to, to have a life-changing moment like that. Cheyenne Knight, just a few weeks ago, back in Dallas at the, uh, I, can't, I can't remember the name, uh, Volunteers of America tournament in Dallas, um, she was on the verge of losing her car. She's playing at home. She'd hardly made a cut all year long. Her brother died when uh, when she was 13, and his football number was 33, and she still plays to honor him. And uh, she shot 33 on both nines, and one of our storytellers, Tom Abbott, told it really, really well. But doing the interview with her and what it meant to her and her family and looking up to the heavens to see your brother and to say this was for you, I hardly made it through the interview. That happens all the time because, I, I mean, I know firsthand what it takes 
to to get to that point, not the highest point like she did, the highest level, but to to be able to to overcome those things and to battle those emotions and to battle those fears and those demons and to to accomplish something that really does change your future, your life uh, permanently, professionally only, obviously not you know, health-wise or family-wise, but professionally. And uh, it's really neat to be able to relay that to the viewer and to bring them inside that and to, and to let them, you know, feel like they're a part of it. And that therein lies the greatest lesson I ever learned from the aforementioned Keith Hirschland, who was the original producer for live tournaments at Golf Channel. And, and to this day, everybody I work with and for um, preaches the exact same gospel, which is tell those stories, bring the viewer in, make them want to continue watching for a reason. Well, and I think one of the things I love most about watching you when you're doing your analysis or your interviews is that you are so relatable with these people and you obviously have a big heart and you obviously have a sense of humor, but you're somebody that is truly pulling for them versus just peacocking or grandstanding for yourself. And so the people give you their best in these interviews and they give you their heart and you see all that real emotion coming out, which is exactly what we, the viewers are most entertained by. I guess, do you have any other favorite stories of these type of situations you're describing where somebody did something ultimately inspiring like Cheyenne? Can you think of any other ones that really stick out through the course of your career countless ones but they would be so obscure to the to your audience guys mostly guys on the court now corn Ferry tour that aren't playing anymore um that I, I really couldn't do justice to i remember uh especially the journeyman you know the tom layman played the the, the his first year on the corn Ferry tour was the year i turned pro and then the next year he was player of the year and he was in his early to mid 30s at the time and was never supposed to make it in golf and he went out and became player of the year went out on the pj tour had instant success and uh and won a major championship got to number one in the world and to this day is one of the most solid human beings i've ever met um he was inspiration to so many people like me and occasionally you get a story like that like a uh, ryan armor two years ago or yeah winning after a couple what 300 starts on the pga tour or, or a guy that we all love at golf channel rob oppenheim who's got his pga tour card back for the third time and and you just love interviewing him because you you know that they're journeymen and and the their chances of succeeding are so so remote but yet they still do it and they still try and occasionally they have success and and those are the stories i love to tell i mean i i really couldn't do justice to trying to relate one that's compelling to to, to your audience, um, but in in a nutshell, you just generalize them all together, and it's it's pretty special. Yeah, no kidding. So I guess we'll we'll kind of fast forward here to modern day. I know that you are someone that is a big advocate for the Ladies Professional Golf Association, and someone that has been outspoken recently on some issues that have come up. Uh, one of them that are from the back tees editors took on ourselves was the Hank Haney controversy that came out with his serious radio show where he made some seemingly disparaging remarks about lady golfers. You were one of the first people to stick your neck out and be critical of Hank in that situation. And I'd say admirably so. Um, obviously, I have my own opinions on it, but without getting too much into a war of words with Haney, tell us a little bit about why you decided to make that choice to speak out on that issue and why you've been such a passionate advocate for the Ladies Golf Association. Um, I 
would be happy to get into a war of words with Hank Haney. Um, <laughs> more than happy to, because that was deplorable what he did. I was, I had, I just got a new truck, pickup truck. I live in the country. I drive a pickup, um, and it had that trial XM radio thing, which I love listening to. A PJ Tour network on on XM Sirius, and uh, but I've, I'm not home enough to pay the twenty bucks a month for it or to feel justified in doing it. And uh, and I had it, and I had it on, and I've known Hank for I think thirty seven years. I later wrote about. And he came on the air not knowing where the tournament was, making fun of, in my opinion, making fun of the Asians and completely discounting women's sports and maybe even women in general. And, and, I, and I, I listened to it. It was the open of his show. And I took lessons from Hank once. I played golf with him a few times. And I, I couldn't believe somebody who makes their living in golf and actually has taught um, LPGA players, women players, would, would, be, would discount it that way. Um, I have now, since then, I've been called a lot of names, snowflake, this and that, liberal, whatever you want. But um, I called uh, my girlfriend, the young lady I live with, who's also a commentator, Karen Stupples, and I called her and I told her basically exactly what she said. And she was beside herself. I mean, everybody was, whoever, who found out about it eventually, everybody at least that supports women's golf or from the LPGA Tour, or maybe just in general, um, looking at the bigger picture in life. And, and I didn't know what to do. And I was driving between doctor's appointments because that's what you do when you get older. You spend a lot of time in doctor's offices. And, uh, and I got to the next appointment. It was 20 minutes later. And I thought, I got, I have to say something. And I've never really been too critical of too many people on, on social media because it's not, it's not good for, you know, I'm a golf commentator. I don't need to be in the middle of a news story. And I, I just couldn't let it slide. And that was the same day Golf Channel had the finals of the men's NCAA live on TV at that time. And it was also the same day my dear friend and, and, and a complete saint in the world, Judy Rankin, was getting uh, uh, honored at, at Memorial by Jack Nicklaus, Nicklaus uh, welcomed into the circle of champions. And I, and I hesitated for a moment after I wrote that tweet. And I'm like, you know what? Of all people, Judy would want me to do this. I didn't want to take any attention away from them, and I didn't know it would mushroom the way it did. And I sent it out, and by the time I turned my phone off, and when I got back in my truck after the ear doctor appointment, it had 30-something hundred uh, messages from Twitter on my phone, and it just mushroomed out of control. And then uh, a young golf blogger, a girl, picked up on it and, and found the found the uh, transcript and tweeted it out and Michelle we picked up on that and then it just went you know went ballistic after that viral as the young people say <laughs> um, but yeah I, I, I couldn't believe that he said those words and you know I, yeah, so I'm an apologist for the LPGA Tour I'm a fan uh, recently called a defender on social media from the LPGA Tour but uh, and I don't I don't I don't have any problem admitting to all that because they uh, they're women fighting an uphill battle in a biased world and I'm going to defend them every chance I get. But when you when you poke fun at the ethnicity of the dominant players because of their ethnicity, not because they're dominant players, I, I had a real hard time with that because, like I've told so many people, I love watching great golf and I've gotten to know basically every player on the LPGA Tour and their true characters and they're phenomenal people and most of them, even though we don't understand their language or they might look similar to us as a, as a culture, they have overcome and achieved so much to get to that point. And, uh, and I just couldn't sit by and let it happen. So I tweeted it out, and it went crazy, and, uh, and uh, it cost Hank his job with XM at the time. Um, but I also thought if he had shown a little contrition and, and apologized and said, I, you know, uh, shame on me, 
it would have been he would have been fine and his you know his devout listeners would have been able to enjoy Hank Haney five days a week for two hours a day but he came out and bragged about picking the right winner because he guessed there were six leads in the field and and John and Lee number six won the tournament and uh, and that was when I yeah that's when I just said I uh, nope I used to know the man, but I don't feel like I know him anymore. You know, the one thing that I've heard from people that are close to Hank that I've spoken to off the record about this is that Hank had been influenced by people at his radio show to try and be more out of bounds with the comedy and try to be more wild boy with the jokes. And that's what Hank is kind of hanging this whole kerfluffle on was that he had been kind of pushed and goaded to be more irksome with the jokes and, and more needling with the jokes. I, I personally think that what he said is indefensible, especially from a racial standpoint, but also, like you said, a dismissal of women's golf in general. Uh, so I agree with you, Jerry. But, I mean, is there anything to that, that, that modern-day media is pushing people to be controversial by nature or else that doesn't equal ratings? I mean, is everybody trying to be Rush Limbaugh and Alex Jones or whatever, or is that just a, an easy excuse? Oh, good. I don't know. I, I, that's... Um, uh, two parts to that, and I'm sorry I'm taking up way too much time talking about this. But uh, first of all, if you if you want to be controversial, you want to be provocative, what have you, you, you can't be lazy. And that was just your lazy. He couldn't he couldn't name uh, he couldn't name six in his words six players in the field in women's golf. Now that's not provocative. That's just that's just lazy. Um, and I understand a lot of people don't watch women's golf who watch men's golf, and he probably watches a lot of men's golf. I don't have any problem with that, but making fun of it and dismissing it the way he did, I do have a big problem with. Uh, secondly, that's not good humor. That's if 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 you're trying, if you're being coached to be more provocative, be a little more controversial. Um, he certainly accomplished that, but once you were suspended almost immediately, he came out with a statement just after his show. He actually talked about it later in the show. I turned it off. I didn't listen to it anymore, but he talked about it later in the show, and his, his uh, cohort told him, no, you're not racist at all. And, and uh, um, he, and then he, then he bragged about picking the winner after the tournament was over and he'd been out of work for four or five days. Then, then I realized there was no contrition that, that he, that, uh, that he, he was trying to defend the fact that, that he knew nothing about women's golf by happening to pick a winner. And, and a little contrition would have been nice. It really would have been nice. And I, I know he's got like a podcast out now or something. Um, but it, it, it just, it, yeah, it, it was bad. It was bad. It was left a scar on the face of uh, of Hank more than anybody, uh, and those who defended him wholeheartedly for for me and people like me and you having a thin skin and not being able to handle the truth. That wasn't the truth. The truth was he didn't know anything about women's golf, and and he makes his living in the world of golf, and he made fun of it, and he in, a, in what I called a sexist and racist tone, um, and yeah, oh. I'll take that with me to the end of my career, that's for sure. Now, the second part of the question, are we being coached that way? No, nobody's being coached that way. Our bosses at NBC would love to find another Johnny Miller, somebody who who the fans is galvanizing to the fans, um, who is going to say things the way they are without any fear of retribution. But Johnny was always, always fair and always showed respect to the game and the players. Uh, and that therein lies a huge difference. But no, we're not we're not coached to be provocative or to be controversial in any way. And I, and anybody who is is going to have a very short career. 
Yeah, I agree. And being somebody that's constantly sticking my foot down my throat and having to learn to be more sincerely apologetic, I see the value in just staying away from these types of loaded jokes to begin with if we do think they are jokes. So I agree with all of what you just said. I want to talk about one other situation that I know you've been... Let me me interrupt you there. In defense of Hank, he meant it to be a joke. He absolutely meant what he said to be a joke. So I'll give him that. Absolutely give him that. Right. So the one other situation that's even more current that I know you've been pretty outspoken about, I wanted to get to, was the recent Q School dust up, for lack of a better term, with Christina Kim, who's a longtime tour veteran who was back at Q School and was able to get her card back again, which is fairly remarkable for somebody at her age and after 20 plus years in the game. But the the dust-up came when she had reported some rules violations that some people thought were fairly benign. And I'll let you, the expert, explain those in more detail. But it had something to do with asking caddies about what club the other person was swinging in her group. And this ended up costing the players that she was playing with strokes later on that they didn't learn about till later on and then eventually uh with their play after that led to them not making their cue cards and making the tour again i guess tell us a little bit more in depth what actually happened there because i know i'm speaking in lay people terms and then kind of what is your opinion on how egregious or appropriate it was for christina kim to report these rules violations Par three T, um, a girl whose name I don't know, Davy something, um, was at the LPJQ school, Q series I call it now. She was hitting on a par three, and and Kendall Die, who was playing alongside in the threesome with her and Christina Kim, um, held three fingers down to ask the caddy, "Is she hitting eight iron?" Even though obviously she knew it was an eight iron, because any player that gets to that level looks down and just kind of confirmed it. Um, that's viewed as asking for advice. And her caddy, uh, Jackie, a, a young lady who does some work for us at the Golf Channel on a on a uh, associate producer standpoint, um, and, and a pretty good caddy, actually, she shook her head yes and stuck the three fingers down and said, yeah, it's an eight iron. Uh, you can ask a player or a caddy that um, after you've hit your ball, uh, but you can't ask them before. It's, it's deemed to be asking for advice. Christina Kim witnessed it. And told the rules official on that when they finished that hole that she saw it, and the rules official evidently gave her the choice to tell them about it after the round. There were ten more holes left, or tell them now. And Christina thought she was being kind of benevolent in saying, "I don't want to upset them." Um, tell them afterwards. So that that left a little bit of a bad taste in people's mouth, and uh, and it was a two-shot penalty. It should have been over and done with. But then Christina, at the end of the round, um, sent out a tweet saying. Uh, uh, public service announcements if you're going to you know know the rules and uh, Kendall took exception to that uh, rightfully so because Christina will tell you now that that wasn't necessary and uh, and it blew up and a lot of people called Kendall Dye a cheater and she wasn't a cheater because she said she didn't know that was a rule I think she knew you couldn't ask for advice but she didn't know you couldn't ask for a signal on a club because the caddies and players are always signaling people what they're hitting on the part three, typically an on-course reporter or a spotter or a, or a family member. If it's meant for our eyes, it's okay for anybody to see. Now, you can also walk straight over to their bag and look in there and see what they're hitting, see what club is missing. And 95% of the caddies and players are cool with that. 
uh, and I've said publicly on, through social media that if in, there, I don't know of a single case where the second player to hit on a par three in professional golf doesn't know what the first player hits if they want to. So it seems it's a whole lot of overreaction to a very innocuous thing. Kendall didn't know the rule. She violated it. She got penalized. She owned up to it. And uh, and it should have been over and done with, but it took on a life of its own, especially when a lot of cynical people started calling her a cheater, to which I took exception to, uh, because I know Kendall Dye pretty darn well, and I, and I know Christina really well, and they're both salt of the earth. They're both people that are an absolute uh, complement to the game of golf and to, to society in general. And for them to both be taking a lot of criticism because a bunch of you know keyboard warriors um, can't let it go is, is 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 sad. It's just you know it's a it's kind of an indictment of the culture we live in. But um, had Christina never sent a tweet, it would have made a story. Beth Ann uh, Nichols for Golf Week wrote has written about it a couple times now, but wrote the original story saying it. Um, it just turned into a lot of drama because uh, because they both took it personally once once it became public, and, and that's unfortunate. Uh, they're both great people. Christina Kim did absolutely the right thing in reporting a rules violation. Um, Kendall Dye uh, did absolutely the right thing in owning up to the fact that it was her fault for not knowing that was a rule. She um, And and it, that should be the end of it. And, and if you ever come out to an LPGA event and you get to meet them, you realize quickly that all this that has happened, and it's had way too long a leg, I thought it would be a 24-hour story. It's still going on on Twitter. I've had to mute the conversations from so many people because um, my phone keeps blowing up with it. Uh, you would realize that it's just a whole bunch of overreaction for nothing. Um, and it really is, and I, I'll make this last point, uh, when they rewrote the rules to make them a little more user-friendly, I think that one just might have been overlooked because you, you really are not gaining any advantage from knowing what another player hit. when you, you don't know how they hit it, you don't know how hard they hit it, and you're a highly trained professional standing on a tee box with a caddy in a yards book that has adjustments for, for terrain, for slope, for wind, for everything, and you have they give you an exact number. I want you to hit this 8-iron 148 yards, even though it's 132 to the hole. And you hit it, and it comes up whole high every time because the caddies are that good at what they do. There's just no advantage in it. And, and even if there were, you're allowed to find out that information legally. You just saved a little time by not walking to the other side of the tee box to see it was an 8-iron or peeking in the bag, um, both of which are completely legal. So it's a, it's a whole bunch about nothing. It's not like they agreed uh, before it was uh, illegal to tap down spike marks, which I've seen. I've been approached by players playing professional golf on the mini-tour level saying, hey, we're going to tap down spike marks today? Uh, that's illegal. Well, no, we'll just say they're ball marks for each other. Like, no, no, you don't do that. But that, that has happened. And it's not like you're, you're breaking a rule that puts the rest of the field at advantage when you can find out legally what they're hitting if you want to know. So it's such an overreaction to something very, very silly and a, and a dumb mistake by Kendall to which uh, she's completely owned up. My one follow-up on this, Jerry, is about the rules of golf. Obviously, the rules of golf are extensive, and they're revered by those in the golf world that take it seriously, especially as it uh, in regards to professional golf. Are there just too many rules for golf, or is this simply a matter of people really needing to do their homework and be up on all the rules like Kendall admitted she needed to be? Well, that rule is pretty basic. Yeah, and Kendall, no, I, I guarantee you she'll tell you. She she's she's goes to social media, and rightfully so, 
Um, she doesn't feel like she needs to defend herself. She owned it. But um, she, there's, there's no way she didn't know you couldn't ask for advice. But there's, because of how prevalent uh, knowing what the other player hit, is, hit on a par three was, uh, then, then she probably just didn't know asking if it were an eight iron was against the rules, as opposed to walking over and looking at it. And her players hit a shot, and oftentimes they'll hold the club up right in front of everybody else for them to see. Completely legal. I hit an eight iron. Or they're talking about their cat. They're talking with their caddy, and you overhear it. Uh, as far as the rules of golf, originally when golf, the first rules of golf were, were written by the Royal Company of Edinburgh Golfers, um, there were 14 rules, and they were very basic, and it's morphed into what it is now. Now the USGA and the RNA have tried to scale it back and make it more user-friendly. But, no, there's so, I mean, because it's not one ball, one arena, and all the rules are the same, there's so many variables, so many hypotheticals that can happen during a round of golf that they've tried covering it all. And the rules aren't written to penalize an honest player, which oftentimes they get into the news and become controversial because they do exactly that. They penalize somebody who's trying to play by the rules and an honest player who has an infraction. Alexi Thompson and Anna Norquist uh, scraping a grain of sand and costing her a U.S. Open. Um, what they're what they're written for is to make sure that nobody cheats, nobody 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 is, replaces skill with being able to get around the rules and cheats. And, and oftentimes they're viewed as way too penal. But it, when you look at it from that perspective, they're exactly right. Uh, are there too many? Maybe could they could they make them a little simpler? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm a big fan of how how many changes they made um, for simplicity purposes but only because I'm so stuck in the mud for having known them. And to the last part of what you asked, uh, there's not a single PGA Tour or LPGA player or professional golfer throughout the face of the earth who could get 100% on a rules test that I know of. So there are always going to be times when there is a rules violation by somebody who even uh, professes and, and has studied and knows the rules very well. And it's impossible to learn that unless that is your life, unless that is your passion, unless that's your hobby. And, and they become rules officially. They're volunteer officials for the USGA and RNA or employed rules officials for the various tours. Well, thank you for clearing that up. I actually think that that does give me some more clarity on all that. I got two more questions for you, Jerry, and we'll start with, uh, with the tougher one. Michael Whalen, one of the architects of the Golf Channel, says that the question he always wishes that everybody asked him in interviews is, what was your biggest regret from your life, whether on the course or off? So I'm going to hit you with it, the hard one first. What's your biggest regret, Jerry? What do you wish you could have done differently along the way? living a cavalier life with no regrets um <laughs> but uh i think i don't know the biggest here all right let me put it in a nutshell getting back to an earlier point and this is uh, quite accurate um the biggest regret is in night uh, my very first year on the hogan tour as an exempt player i finished 11th um two seconds and two thirds i couldn't i couldn't even hit the ball within uh, predictably within 30 yards of where I was pointing, but I played golf. I just did it. I went out there and got it done. You grind it out. You know, I knew I could get the ball in the hole, and I thought, well, and that year they only awarded five cards, and then only the next five were exempt. So the very next year, 19, whatever it was, I wasn't even exempt. And uh, and so I thought, well, heck, I can. And that, you know, to qualify for the Hogan Tour at that time, I had missed my PGA Tour card by two shots. It was the same Q school. 
And I thought, well, heck, you know what? I can, uh, if I just get a little better, I can do this. So I went to, I went to try and find a teacher. I didn't go back to the guy who taught me growing up. I hadn't had a lesson in 15 years, but I didn't go back to the guy who, I, who taught me growing up. I went and found my friend's instructor, and uh, and he got me hitting it pretty well. But he, I lost, I, you know, I lost what was the feel of my swing, and through time, that led me to basically every instructor who walked a range on the on the uh, Hogan tour or the PJ tour when I had a chance to get a cup of coffee out there. Um, and next thing you know, you have absolutely no idea where the golf ball is going. So if I had one regret, it was it was thinking that the answer lied outside of me and not inside of me, that I couldn't figure out where the golf ball is going. Kurt Byron and I have this conversation all the time. If you never changed instructors and never had a lesson from somebody else, and you just went out and played golf, you always would know where your tendencies are, where that golf ball's going. And once you start making those changes, which makes Tiger even more remarkable than, he, than what he has accomplished, because he's gone through three or four of them. Um, once you start making those changes, you lose your ability to go back to what got you there. Uh, he's the only person I know, other than Nick Faldo and Marco Mira, who both had great careers in, as amateur golfs and early in their professional career before they revamped their swings. They're the only two who made major swing changes and went on to have more success than they had before, other than Tiger Woods. Most people cannot do it, and I regret ever going to have a lesson from somebody other than the guy who taught me growing up who knew my swing, because I, I think, you know, part of me wants to believe and dream that I could still be playing, because nobody becomes a commentator on purpose. You become a commentator because you can't be competitive anymore. And I would still love at 57 years old to be playing in Phoenix this week at the Charles Schwab Cup Championship as a guy that everybody knows from only playing golf as opposed to a guy that some people know for talking about golf. Well, you kind of even led me to the last question. My last question is, what is the impossible dream that Jerry Fultz still dreams? And is it getting into one more senior open or is it somehow finding a way onto the champions tour or, or is it something completely outside of golf and television altogether? What is the impossible dream that you still dream? Wow. That's a, there's so many different answers to that. I think, uh, to be my son, I have one child, he's 23 to be the best daddy ever had to be his best friend as he, as he makes his way through life to, uh, to be remembered as, uh, or to be revered as a commentator that people actually tune in to listen to, which doesn't happen in sports. You never turn on something because you want to hear the commentator. You turn it on because of who's playing and who's playing well. Um, that's that that should never happen. I hope it never happens. But to be you know to be remembered as a commentator that people really enjoyed listening to and never really thought too highly of himself would be good, although that, that statement itself contradicts itself, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but uh, golf-wise, golf-wise, I think uh, the, the, the biggest picture is to leave the world a better place than you found it. That's what I said about my dad when I eulogized him at his funeral, and that's what I hope is said about me. I'm, I know it won't be. They'll talk about um, <laughs> how, how I live my life. But, uh, but golf-wise, I have... Uh, successfully played in every USGA championship for which I was eligible. That was starting with the U.S. Junior, the U.S. Publix Links, the U.S. Amateur, and the U.S. Open. Um, not a lot of them, but I played in them. And I have tried twice now for 
to qualify for the U.S. Senior Open, I would, and I'm going to give that a few more tries, uh, schedule depending, uh, just to tee it up and say that I've, you know, the hat trick for me to play in every USGA, every national championship for which I was eligible. Um, it makes it a little tough because the older guys can still play, and I don't play golf anymore. So it's going to be a little tough. That maybe I can, you know, you still dream. Like I told you at the beginning of this, at 57 years old, you still dream that you can catch lightning in a bottle every single time I play golf. On the drive out there the night before, I'm playing golf tomorrow with my son and Karen. And uh, and I know, I know tomorrow I get, I'm going to get up on that first tee and I'm going to have the best round I ever had in my life. And uh, and that optimism never leaves. And that's, that is the uh, the hook of the game. Now, by the third or fourth hole, I'll be looking for the beer cart. But <laughs> at least right now, I think I still got it. And I, I would love to be able to have one last chance to show it. Well, that's a wonderful answer. You know, I, I forgot one question. I'll throw it in on the end. You have been credited with seven aces in your career. Seven. I'd be lucky if I ever got one. Does it ever get old hitting a hole in one, or is that just a rhetorical question? <laughs> well, that's not an accurate number, um, but I'm not going to say what the actual number is. It's going to sound like I'm gloating. Uh, no, it's always fun. The last, the last legitimate one I made, I was playing with uh, Tom Abbott, my cousin-in-law, which I, I claim as a thing. I'm the head pro at Hideout Country Club and uh, Hideout Golf Club in Naples. And I thinned the nine iron, and I couldn't see it land because, like I said, I'm old and go to eye doctors, near doctors. And the head pro said that went in, and, and I, it just hit such a bad golf shot. Thinned it. I knew I hit it online, and I thought it was going to hit the front of the green, and uh, and it went in, and it's. Uh, no, it's pretty cool, but it's mostly luck. It really is mostly luck. It, uh, when you think of guys like Nick Faldo and Fred Couples who went so long in their careers without ever having one, who are 100 times the player I ever was, uh, it, it's just all luck. The, the one thing I've never had, and I'm jealous, uh, I have a friend who lives in Boise, Idaho, who's had seven of them and only like two or three holes in one, um, is an albatross. I've never had a single one of those. Now, that would be pretty cool, a two on a par five or an ace on a par four, uh, but I've never had one. And, um, and yeah, that would be pretty cool. No, get, making aces never gets old. It, <laughs> buying the drinks for everybody afterwards does, but making aces never gets old. Well, I guess if it's mostly luck, I can still dream too, Jerry. That's good to know. Good to know. Mm. Well, brother man, thank you so much for taking this interview. I guess the last thing I'll say is, do you have any shout-outs you'd like to make or any final statements you'd like to make, anybody you want to give love to? Obviously, you talked about Keith Hirschland, and I want to thank him as well for helping set this up. But anybody else you'd like to give credit to or any final Jerry Springer moments you'd like to have here? Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's not my style at all. I, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, I love my job, and I hope my bosses keep me around for a long time to do it because uh, – that's, uh, that has become my passion in life, to be able to relate those stories and, and tell the stories and, and bring out, um, make the, the people whom I'm covering uh, the real stars, and they are. And, uh, and no, I have no shout-outs at all. It's, uh, it's a pleasure doing it. I'm glad we finally got together to do this. And I'm sorry it got so deep. That was all you're doing, by the way. You asked great questions, and I've never gotten that deep in an interview. So uh, apologize to your viewers ahead of time or or behind it because they won't hear this till the end of the podcast uh, for making this about me instead of about the people that I cover. Oh, no, man. It was all about getting deep. I'm just glad you went deep with me and didn't freak out. So appreciate that too, Jerry. You got it, Tucker. Thanks, man. All right, buddy. Thank you.